please take God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. We declared uh, this psalm together just a few moments ago, but I ask you to follow along as I now read it and declare it for us publicly. Psalm 122, beginning to read in verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There was a pastor named Samuel Stone, who lived in the 19th century in England. And the time came when he was concerned, let's say, uh, about some of his parishioners, uh, the members of his church. He was concerned with uh, the level of their understanding uh, in terms of Christian truth, doctrine. They could all recite from memory the Apostles' Creed, but he was concerned that most of them did not know or understand what they were saying with their lips. He was concerned that they did not grasp the significance of those wonderful articles, sentences, statements, which make up the Apostles' Creed. And so he wrote a a book, and he called it the Lyra Fidelium. Faithful instrument, musical instrument, the Lyra Fidelium. And that book consists of 12 poems, songs, each of the poems corresponding to one of the articles in the Apostles' Creed. And then he had his people memorize these poems, these hymns, these songs, and he worked through them uh, with his people to ensure that they understood exactly what they were saying uh, when they declared publicly, with one voice, the Apostles' Creed. The ninth article of the Apostles' Creed is this. We believe in one holy Catholic church. I'm pausing for effect. No one get frightened by that word Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church hijacked it in the 5th century, but it is a good word. It simply means universal. We believe in the body of Christ, one holy, universal, Catholic church, the communion of saints. And the hymn, the poem he wrote, corresponding to that article, the ninth article of the Apostles' Creed, was this, the church is one foundation. Most of us know that. As a matter of fact, I'm guessing the vast majority of us are familiar with that hymn, the first stanza of which declares, The church is one foundation, 
is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. I think we sing, Richard can correct me, I think we sing four stanzas in that hymn, don't we? There are actually six or seven stanzas in the original poem in which Samuel Stone, as he reflects on that article of the Apostles' Creed, revels in the church and celebrates the church. I'm going to pause again for effect because that might sound strange to some of you. I'm not here today to revel in the church. I'm not here today to celebrate the church. I'm here today to revel in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here today to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here today to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friend, here's what you must understand. There is no difference between the two. To revel in the church is to revel in Christ. To celebrate the church is to celebrate Christ. And I trust and pray we will all be convinced of that. And celebrating Christ as we celebrate the church by the time we're finished here this day. To that end, we've turned to Psalm 122, in which we have a wonderful celebration. Uh, We are studying the Psalms of Ascent. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at Psalm 120. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 121, just going right through the batting order. Today, Psalm 122. And I'm going to do what I have done in the past Sundays. Uh, I'm going to explain it, however painful that might be. We need to understand this Psalm. We need to make sure we are interpreting it correctly, understanding it. And so I'm after your mind. I really am. I'm after that gray cerebral mass. And I want us all to make sure we understand when we read this portion of God's word that we get what he is saying. So explanation, interpretation. And then what we want to do is we want to come, bring it, the psalm, this side of the cross. The psalmist lived before Christ's first coming. He lived on the other side of Calvary's cross. We live on this side of the cross. We live after Christ's first coming. And so we want to bring that psalm up to the present, this side of the cross. And then we want to apply it. So first, I've already warned you, explanation. And this is is cognitive. We're after the mind here, our understanding, to make sure we grasp what what the psalmist is saying. Right off the bat, I want to make two observations briefly. The first concerns the author of this psalm. There's something different. You wouldn't have noticed it because I didn't read it. But Psalm 120 doesn't have a title. Psalm 121 doesn't have a title. Psalm 122 does have a title and is included in the original manuscripts. It's inspired. A song of ascents of David. Here's something different. We actually know who wrote this psalm. We know the author. The author was David. That helps us. It sheds some light when it comes time to interpreting the content of the psalm. The second observation I want to make concerns the psalm's theme. What is it about? Look with me again at verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go, where? To the house 
of the Lord. That's the first verse. You notice the statement, the house of the Lord. Now skip all the way down, fast forward, verse 9, the last verse, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so what is the theme of this psalm? It is the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord which stands where? Jerusalem. So here is the great theme. We know the author, it's David. We know the theme, it's the house of the Lord. Three questions, quickly. First question, as we put these two observations, these two facts concerning this psalm together, I come up with these three questions. They lead me to these three questions. Number one, what does David mean by the house of the Lord? If you said temple, you're wrong. Temple isn't built yet, right? Solomon will build it decades later. So what does David mean by the house of the Lord? Well, he sacked, he conquered the city of Jerusalem. He made it his capital over his kingdom. And he brought the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark, which sits in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He brought the Ark of the Covenant with huge fanfare to the city of Jerusalem. And he placed it in a tent, undoubtedly just like the tabernacle, of which we read in the Old Testament. And for David, that was the house of the Lord. That was God's dwelling place. That was where God set his name. That is the place God made his habitation. For later generations, when they sang this psalm after Solomon, they undoubtedly had what in view when they thought of the house of the Lord? The actual temple, which then housed the Ark of the Covenant. Question number two is this. Why is the house of the Lord so important to David? I already alluded to it. It is the place where God puts his name. It is the place which God, in accordance with his promise made earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it is the place which he has made his holy habitation. It is the place where God reveals his glory. And so David wants to be where God magnifies himself. David wants to be where God glorifies himself. Question number three is this, how? How does David express his excitement? How does he express his enthusiasm? How does he express his devotion to the house of the Lord? That's the psalm. And there are four answers. Four answers. Work through them with me. Answer number one. How does David express his devotion to the house of the Lord? We see it in four ways. Firstly, number one, we see it in his love. His love for Jerusalem. Verse one. I was glad, literally excited, When they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so friends, colleagues make this suggestion. It's time. Let's go up to worship. And what is David's response? This enthusiastic excitement. He's overwhelmed with joy, gladness. Look at verse 6. The second statement. May they be secure who love you. The language is actually a little embarrassing makes me blush. I'm not blushing now. But, but it's actually describing the relationship between a husband and wife. A husband gets excited when he thinks of his wife. He's glad to see his wife. He loves his wife. This is the relationship that's being described here as David ponders the house of the Lord. As he ponders the city of Jerusalem, he, he is overwhelmed with gladness. His love is expressed in this, in this, this, this desire 
He makes the house of the Lord the object of his desire. He anticipates being there. He makes the house of the Lord the object of his delight. He enjoys being there. He dreams about it. He writes poetry about it. That's what this psalm is. Here's a man smitten. Smitten with love. Number two. How does David express his devotion to the house of the Lord? Verses 2 through 5. We see it in his esteem for Jerusalem. So look at verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so we can picture him there with his colleagues, with his friends, with his relatives, and they're just gazing in wonder at the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, built as a city that is bound firmly together. But then in verses 4 and 5, his attention is drawn to two specifics, two very specific details. First of all, he esteems Jerusalem. Why? In verse 4, because it is the religious center of Israel to which the tribes go up. Three times a year appointed for worship, right? The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. And why did they go up? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. And so Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, is the place where the priest serves And it is the place where the people gather to worship. But there's a second detail which manifests his high esteem for Jerusalem. Verse 5, not only is it the religious center, it's the political center. There, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. And so not only is Jerusalem the place where the priest ministers and the people gather to worship, but Jerusalem is the place where the king reigns and the people gather for judgment. And for that twofold reason, religious center, political center, David holds Jerusalem in high esteem. Number three, how does David express his devotion to the house of the Lord? We see it in his prayer for Jerusalem. Verse six, pray for The peace, count with me, one, of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Verse 7, peace, there's number 2, be within your walls and security within your towers. Verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, number 3, peace be within you. What is that? It's shalom. And so David is praying on behalf of Jerusalem, and here the brick and mortar sort of, sort of fades into the background, and the inhabitants, the real Jerusalem, the people of God come into view, and David is praying on behalf of those people. David is praying on behalf of Jerusalem, and his prayer, he mentions it three times, is for peace, that God's countenance might shine upon them. Shalom. What is shalom? What is peace? It is God with us. It is God for us, and it is God in us. But how does David express his devotion to the house of the Lord? Number four brings us to the ninth verse. We see it in his labor for Jerusalem. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. What good is in view? It's what he has just mentioned in verses 6 through 8. Peace and security. 
And so for the sake of the house of the Lord, because this is God's dwelling place on earth, because this is the place where God has chosen to put his name and make his holy habitation, I will seek your good. He will expend his time, his energy, his effort, his strength, his gifts, his resources, his abilities, all that God has given him. He will exhaust. Why? With this one overarching, overwhelming goal, the good of Jerusalem. Did you get all that? It wasn't too difficult, was it? We now understand the song. We see what's going on there. And we see David's devotion to the house of the Lord. And we see it expressed, again, in love for Jerusalem, esteem for Jerusalem, in his prayer for Jerusalem, and in his labor, his work, his effort, his diligence for Jerusalem. Now, here's what we need to do. I already alluded to it in the introduction. We need to bring this psalm where? Fast forward to this side of the cross. The Lord Jesus declared in John 5, the scriptures bear witness about me. And so the scriptures, when the Lord Jesus uttered those words, what did he mean? He could only have meant one thing, the Old Testament. The Old Testament bears witness about me, of me. In other words, the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, everything in between, the Old Testament only has one subject. The Old Testament only has one theme. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament, we do not interpret the Old Testament as an end in itself. We interpret the Old Testament through the light given by Christ in the New Testament. I give you this paradigm every three or four months or so. And you can let me know later if you're getting tired of it. Actually, don't bother. It just depress me. I'm going to give it to you anyway. And three or four months from now, I'm going to give it to you again. Because this is so important when it comes to interpreting the Bible that we, that we understand how it, all, how it all fits together. We have the Old Testament. Did I lose anybody with that? No. We have the Old Testament. There it is. And we have the New Testament. Put it on top. And we turn to uh, Mark, for example, chapter 1. We were there not that long ago, last year. And we hear the Lord Jesus preaching in Galilee. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Preach and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. What time is fulfilled? What is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. That means when we go back then to the Old Testament, what are we looking for? We're looking for that kingdom. And we've entered what in the Old Testament? Well, not the fulfillment, because Jesus says with his preaching, the time is fulfilled. We're looking for what? The preparation. Have I lost anybody so far? So we've got the Old Testament here, the New Testament here. We know the New Testament with the coming of Christ. Well, that's the age of fulfillment. When we go back to the Old Testament, that's the age of preparation. And when we go back and read that Old Testament, we do so through the lens, if you like, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament revelation. So I go all the way back to the Old Testament, and I, and I get a brick. I'm not very good at this. hell could help me. But I, I get a brick, and, uh, and I throw it down. And, and that brick, I'm laying a foundation here. That brick is the first block in my foundation, and I call it the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that era, that age. And there I see the kingdom promised. Because God promised it. He promised a seed. He promised land. He promised a blessing. And those things had a temporal significance but pointed to something far greater. 
And so I go back to the patriarchs, and I see the kingdom promised. And then I move, move ahead in history, and I enter a period of time known as the Judges. And I grab another brick and mortar, put some mortar there on the cement or whatever. On that first brick, I throw the other one on top, and now I've got the Judges. Well, I'm in a different era here. But I'm still looking for the kingdom, and what do I find? I find the kingdom prefigured in all those Judges. Israel in bondage and apostasy, and God sends Judges to redeem them, deliver them. Each and every one of those Judges, no matter how sinful they were, do you know who they pointed to? The Lord Jesus Christ. That without a king, there is chaos. And they point to and they prefigure a coming king, a coming Messiah, who was promised to the patriarchs. And then I move on from the judges, and I enter this this period of time known as the kings. And we were there just a few months ago when we looked at the life of of Saul. And I pull out another brick, a little more cement, and I I throw that third brick on top. I've moved on from the the age of promise, the kingdom promise, the patriarchs. I've moved on from the judges, the kingdom prefigured. And I've come now to the age of the kings, the kingdom previewed. And I see Saul, I see David, I see Solomon. And in particular in David, I see a man after God's own heart. And I hear God promise David that one of your descendants is going to reign forever, an eternal kingdom. And so I have it previewed. And then I pull out a fourth brick. I throw it on top. I'm now in the days of the prophets. All of those complicated books that we'd rather not read, but we must read in the Old Testament. We've looked at a few over the years. And there we have the kingdom prophesied. And they take, in all the Old Testament language, they move beyond the material. They move beyond the earthly, and they point to something far greater. And so we have the patriarchs, the kingdom promised. There's your first brick. We have the judges, the kingdom prefigured. We have the kings, the kingdom previewed. We have the prophets, the kingdom prophesied. And then the Lord Jesus, preaching in Galilee, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And he inaugurates the kingdom. He establishes it. He establishes it through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, where he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he rules until he makes every last enemy a footstool for his feet. And then he comes back. And what do we have? The kingdom consummated. That's how we read the Bible. That's how we make sense of the Bible. So when we go back into the Old Testament, we pick up the book of Psalms, we look at Psalm 122. This psalm does not exist as an end in itself. We read it through the light of the New Testament. We read it through the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear the Lord Jesus in John 4 speaking to that Samaritan woman, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will anyone worship the Father. We will worship in spirit and in truth. With that statement, do you know what the Lord Jesus does? He sweeps away the Old Testament worship. And he points to something of far greater significance, that the temple of God is now among men. He is the temple of God. And now all who are made one with him by the Holy Spirit are growing, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He adds, we are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so when it comes to applying Psalm 122, here's the key. What the house of the Lord, Jerusalem, was to David, the church is 
to us. That's how we interpret it, through the light of Scripture, progressive revelation, working backwards. The Old Testament did not exist in and of itself. It points to something else. It prepares for something else. We move from the age of preparation to the age of fulfillment. We move from the shadows into the realm of the substance. That's why I get a little, not annoyed, just like that. See those bumper stickers, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You ever seen those? Got no problem with that. We're not called to pray for the peace of the city of Jerusalem any more than we're called to pray for the peace of city Fort Worth or even Dallas. We pray for the peace of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the culmination of, of, of God's eternal plans and purposes to sum up all things in Christ. And now when we go back to Psalm 122, with that grid firmly in place and with confidence, we know what the house of the Lord, the temple, was to David. The church is to us. And so we can retrace our steps. We can make our way through this psalm again, and we can look at David's devotion to the house of the Lord. And what do we see? We see our devotion to the church, the temple. This temple that the Lord Jesus Christ is constructing and building by the Holy Spirit. And so we can retrace our steps through Psalm 122. Look at David's devotion to the temple and the four expressions of that devotion. And we can ask four questions of ourselves. I'll ask four questions of me. Question number one. This is the application. Like David, do we love the church? Verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse 6, second statement, may they be secure who love you. Is the object of my desire and delight the church? Do I anticipate being among God's people? Do I enjoy being among God's people? There is, there is a, a growing trend, I suppose it's been there throughout history. It seems to be growing today because we live in a very individualistic society. But this trend, uh, Kevin DeYoung, a preacher, author, he has summed it up in this word, decorpulation. It's not a word. I put it on my, on, in the Word document on my computer and spell check did not like that at all. There was red everywhere. Decorpulation. It's a play on words, decapitation. We know what that is, right? Removal of the head. Decorpulation, says Kevin DeYoung, the removal of the body. And, he's, and he's, he's pointing to a trend which is increasingly prevalent whereby professing believers today, they're guilty of decorpulation. They claim to hold to the head. They claim to love the Lord Jesus. They claim to be devoted to the Lord Jesus, but they have no interest in love for nor commitment to the church. Is that even possible? I don't think it is. To love Christ the head is to love the church, the body. To love Christ, the bridegroom, the husband, is to love the church, his bride. Now, some object to that, and I know this because I've heard it. And I've seen it in a place or two. Uh, they'll say, well, hey, hang on, back up. Um, I love the Lord Jesus, and I'm committed to the Lord Jesus, and I hear what you're saying 
Anyone who loves Christ will, will love the church. Well, I do love the church. I love the church Catholic, universal. And uh, it's wonderful. But, but I don't think that means I need to be committed to any particular local church. I love the church in general terms. And I get excited about the church in general terms. I esteem the church in general terms. But I do not feel the need, see the need, nor feel the burden, nor recognize the priority for me to commit to a local church or love a local church. Here's the question by way of reply. How can we claim to love the people of God without actually loving any particular people of God? Did you get the question? Let me try to illustrate it. I declare to you this day, right now, this moment, I love the people of Glen Rose. But I don't want to spend time with any of them in particular. But I love, I love them. Don't misunderstand me. I get a warm, fuzzy feeling whenever I think of the people of Glen Rose. But I can't come up with one name, one person, anyone I'd like to go for lunch with. You would call me crazy. And yet that is the claim that people make today. I love the Lord Jesus. And I love the church. But um, I see no need to actually commit to any local expression of the body of Christ. I don't see any need to get involved. I don't see any need to serve. I don't see any need to be a part of anything. To that individual, I say, you are, you can fill in the rest. That, that is a reality with which many people are living today. That is a paradigm, sadly, which many people have adopted. But let me repeat, to love Christ is to love his body. To love his body, we put feet to that how? By loving a local expression of that body. Jesus Christ set his love upon the church before the foundation of the world. He predestined her for glory. He became a man for her. He humbled himself for her. He endured affliction for her. He experienced terrible rejection for her. He suffered for her. He wept for her. He pled for her. He bled for her. He died for her. He purchased her with his blood. He woos her by his spirit. He marries her, becoming one flesh with her. He cherishes her. Cleanses her. He bestows gifts and blessings upon her. He protects her. He guides her. And he longs for the day when he will present her in splendor. Does that stir me to love her more? How is it possible I can't commit myself or devote myself to a local expression of the church? Something which is so high and exalted in the estimation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do we love the church like David? Second question is this. It's obvious. You know what's coming. Like David, do we esteem the church? Why does he esteem the church as he stands there in the midst of Jerusalem? He points to two details. Do you remember? First of all, he celebrates what? It's the religious center. It's where the priest serves and the people gather to worship. It's the political center. It's where the king reigns and the people gather for judgment. Do you see something there? Priest, king, priest, king. They find their fulfillment in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the house of God, these two are brought together. In the Lord Jesus Christ, these two are united. The priestly office and the kingly office. He is our priest. He mediates between a holy God and a rebellious sinner. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And his kingly office. God has put all things in subjection under his feet and he's given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Where else would you want to be than in the church? There we have our great high priest, the one mediator between God and men. And there we have our king ruling and reigning in righteousness, governing every iota of human existence. And he governs it for one purpose, one purpose only, for his church. Everything, everything that happens under the sun serves in some way, we've entered the realm of the God of mysteries, in some way as it is fulfilled, As it occurs, in some way it serves this one great and glorious end. The benefit of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we esteem the church? Oh, David esteems the church. The kingly and the priestly. Do we understand that the church is the place on earth where God has placed his name? That's a humbling thought. We don't have time to go down there. That road. Do we understand that it is the place on earth which he has taken to be his holy habitation? Do we understand it is the only place, only place, the people of God, whereby he has chosen to magnify his glory on the face of the earth? Do we esteem her? A lot of things butting up against that. Uh, A lot of things antithetical to that. I mentioned it earlier. We live in a very individualistic society, right? Individualism. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. No, he does not. God helps the helpless. The helpless. But we like, I'm a self-made man, right? Individual. Don't need anybody. We understand neither ourselves, the church, nor the Lord Jesus Christ. But that spirit of individualism reigns supreme, doesn't it? Elitism. That's very detrimental, antithetical to a high estimation of the church. Perfectionism. It's just going to lead to judgmentalism. That antithetical to a high esteem of the church. Perhaps the the most detrimental, and one we all wrestle with and must overcome, and, and some really struggle with it, is cynicism. Cynicism is detrimental, antithetical to holding and appreciating, maintaining a high esteem for the church. Cynicism. Um, Maybe this illustration will help. Maybe it won't. Just forget it then, but listen for now. Uh, It's going to strike you as odd. Remember Dorothy, Wizard of Oz? And uh, Dorothy arrives at the Emerald City with her her friends in tow. And uh, they appear before Oz, and it's, uh, it's his face, right, of smoke, Enormous, gigantic face of smoke and, uh, and light and fire. And there's a booming, thundering voice. And they cower in awe before Oz. Toto, is that the name of the dog? Runs over to the curtain, pulls it back, and what do we see? What do they see? There's a tiny old man working 
the levers, pushing the buttons, talking into a microphone. He's the one making, manufacturing that head and the booming voice. They're looking at him. He looks at them. Not quite sure what to do, but he's not ready to give up yet. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Right? That's the church. The curtain is drawn. The curtain is pulled back. We enter the church with all sorts of idealistic ideas and grandeur ideas and notions of what it should be like, what people should be like, and how people should treat me, and what this should be like, and what that should be like. And within months, weeks, dare I say hours, the curtain falls. And what are we left with? Reality. And the temptation and the danger is what? Cynicism. To become very cynical. Here's the, thing, here's the thing we need to keep in mind. Um, how does a man respond? I won't go down this road with women, but how does a man respond? How does a friend of mine respond to man if I, if I criticize his body? Your nose, nothing on Pinocchio, right? Head, too big, ears. If I criticize his body, how does he react? He doesn't take that very kindly. How about if I criticize his wife? How does he respond to that? He's even more furious with me for daring to oppose his wife. Friends, when it comes to the church and cynicism, do you think the Lord Jesus takes it personally? The church is his body. The church is his wife. When we stand in judgment and authority over the church and from our umpire's chair, out in, out in, 40 love, out in, and we sit in judgment and we develop that spirit of cynicism, do we realize against whom we are speaking? To criticize the body is to criticize the head. To criticize the wife, the spouse, is to criticize and go after and be cynical toward the head. Our attitude toward the church is our attitude toward Christ. To reject the church is to reject Christ. To ignore the church is to ignore Christ. To belittle the church is to belittle Christ. How we treat the church is how we treat Christ. Our commitment to the church is our commitment to Christ. Our esteem for the church is our esteem for Christ. We cannot separate the two. We cannot divorce the two. Because the Lord Jesus has taken to himself by eternal union a people who he is cleaning up, whom he is cleansing, whom he is in the process of sanctifying with this objective, this goal of presenting them before him in splendor. I dare say he takes it very, very personally when through our cynicism, Off we go to the sidelines and begin to point and and nitpick and go after this and go after that. Oh, do we have esteem for the church? Yes, don't misunderstand me. There are things we should be seeking to correct, definitely. There are many, many, many things of which we should repent, most certainly. But a spirit of cynicism really isn't interested in those things. A spirit of cynicism always moves to the fringes and is never happy is never satisfied. Oh, friend, don't be one of those. Understand who the bride of Christ is. Understand what the body of Christ is. Understand this union of the priestly and the kingly. Understand that the church, however imperfect and full of hypocrites, you know, I hear that a lot. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. Friend, join up because you'll fit right in. 
You'll find a happy home with us. Yes, group of hypocrites, on you come. Full of hypocrites, no doubt about it. Sinners, saved by grace, struggling, wayfaring, warfaring, looking and hoping and longing. Join up. You'll fit right in. And we look to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we esteem the church, priestly and kingly. The place, the people upon whom he has set his name. The place, the people whom he has taken as a holy habitation. Question number three is this. Like David, do we pray for the church? Peace, verse 6. Peace, verse 7. Peace, verse 8. Shalom. Those who are justified by faith have peace with God, the removal of hostility. We come to God through the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus, our mediator, our king, our priest. He has removed the cause of separation, the cause of enmity and hatred and hostility, us toward God. The problem being our sin. He has removed it how? By bearing the penalty of that sin at Calvary's cross. God reckoning our sin to him. God judging the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We now come through the Lord Jesus Christ as part of his body, as his bride, and we have access to the very throne room of God. And we pray for one another. We pray for the good of the church. What do we pray for? Shalom. God with us, for us, in us. Here's what we pray. We pray. And this is in accordance with what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. We pray that we might abound in God's distinguishing love for us. We pray that we might abound in that love which knows no height nor depth nor breadth nor length. That distinguishing love for us. His people. That love he has for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, if you're part of the church, you are the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye. His delight. Because you are one with his delight. The Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you in Christ when he chose you before the foundation of the world. He loved you in Christ when he predestined you to be adopted into his family. He loved you in Christ when he punished Christ upon that bloody cross. He loved you in Christ when he sent forth the Holy Spirit into your heart. And he loves you now. Charles Spurgeon declared, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Oh, the Christian knows. The Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today, and poor tomorrow, sick today, and well tomorrow, happy today, and distressed tomorrow. But there is no change with regard to his relationship to God. If God loved me yesterday, he loves me today. Let dreams be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let joys be withered. I have lost Nothing of what I have in God. That is shalom. That is peace. That is God with us, for us, and in us. Notice in connection to that prayer, the fellowship, the community, the communion, verse 8. Look at what David says there. For my brothers, my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, for their sake, for their good, for their benefit, I will say he's praying, peace be within you. One author said, fellowship 
is birthed from a common conviction concerning God's truth. A common experience of God's grace and a common inclination from God's spirit. It is deepened in the fire of affliction, deepened in the heat of battle, and deepened in the face of opposition. And it is expressed in the chamber of prayer. David prays for Jerusalem. Do we pray for the church? Question number four. This is the last one, but this we end. Like David, do we labor for the church? Ninth verse, for the sake. Now notice the play on words. In verse eight, it was for the sake of my brothers and companions. I will say, peace be within you. Now verse nine, it is for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. I will expend myself. I will exhaust myself. I will give everything I have for your good. Jerusalem is what David is saying. Why? He's not thinking of anybody else here. Of whom is he thinking? For the sake of the house of the Lord. For God's sake. That's why we labor in the context of the church. We don't labor because of what we get out of it. Uh, Mark Phillips was sharing with me just this past week that... uh, you know, Caitlin in Southern in, uh, in Kentucky, the Phillips were there and they heard the uh, Al Mohler's address to the students. And it, Mark was just sharing one statement, which we could adopt, tweak a little, but it is just as applicable. And Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, don't correct me if I'm wrong later. But the statement was something to this effect, I think. Um, the church or the, the seminary, Southern Seminary, uh, isn't uh, about you. He's speaking to the students. It isn't about you. It's for you but it is not about you. How true that is of the church. How true that is of Grace Community Church. Grace Community Church is not about you. And I know what you want me to say. It's not about me either. It's not about us. It is for us, but it is about God. And it is when we make much of God that we actually serve and benefit and mature and nurture and help one another. He's given us gifts, each of us at least one gift. And we employ it for the good of the church, out of love for the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of love for his church, his body, his bride, out of love for this local expression of the whole. He's given a gift, our risen head, and he has commanded us to use it, to use it for God's sake, for our good, and for the edification of the church. Do we point people away from themselves and ourselves to God? Are we living examples of faith, hope, and love? Are we helping or hindering, encouraging or discouraging, edifying or destroying, comforting or criticizing? If everyone were just like me, what would this church be like? If everyone were just like you, what would this church be like? What would the attendance be like? What would the giving be like? What would the serving be like? Just what would it be like? Do we give ourselves, do we labor for the church like David labors for the church? You know, friends, brothers and sisters, I I give thanks to God for my every remembrance of you, especially these times that we've been through of late, these past few months, and those of our number who are really struggling, and the meals, and the visits, and the cards, and the phone calls, and the doctor's appointments, and the giving of time, the giving of self. Oh, I thank the Lord in my every remembrance of you. We serve a great God 
And we serve and we engage in these things and much more beside for one purpose, one purpose alone, for his sake, for the sake of the house of the Lord. It's not about what I get out of it. It's not about what it does for me. It's not about what I get in return. It's not about how many people notice me. I may never get noticed. No one may ever express the least bit of appreciation. But here's the thing. I don't do it for anyone. I do it for God. I do it for his sake. And I do it to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do it for the church, the body of Christ, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me conclude again with that first stanza from the hymn. Uh, Richard's going to come back, the other musicians, and lead us in this hymn. But just hear again those words penned by Samuel Stone. The church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for those great and glorious truths. So wonderfully expressed and so beautifully put to song. And as we sing these words together and as we celebrate the church, We pray that Christ, your Son, might in our midst be magnified and glorified. In his name we do pray.